Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago and got a good diverse set of questions to get into as the Australian Open approaches. Uh, Monday match analysis this week is going to be on the United Cup and Brisbane. And Australian Open draw preview is going to drop, uh, I believe, Friday next week. And then I'm not sure if there's going to be a mailbag or not because first Monday of a major is always mailbag. So I might try to do something else next week. Uh, also, last bit of housekeeping, Breakpoint Show with me and Gruskin, it's going to be back. Very, very soon, we actually got the episodes early from Netflix, so we're going to be right on top of the release. As soon as the docuseries Season 2 is released on Netflix, Gruskin and I are going to start dropping our reaction and analysis episodes. Very exciting. With that, let us get into this mailbag. First question from Max. What are your thoughts on Alex Dimonor's 2024 season? I know Djokovic was injured, but Dimonor has sharpened his game quite a bit and is about to make the top 10. Well, this question slash comment is prophetic as late last night, Dimonor defeats Alexander Zverev at the United Cup three-set match, and he will indeed make his top 10 debut next week. So uh, huge accomplishment, major congratulations to Alex Dimonor, um, who has talked a lot about the doubters and how people didn't really believe that he would be capable of, of doing this. And I think, you know, it's become a meme, and I've certainly had my fair share of poking fun at a lot of the people who have, you know, across all, not just tennis, across all sports, who... Are, seem to be hyper fixated on the doubters and half the time it's like you know you were like the number one seed and you're saying like nobody believed in us the whole world was against us and I mean I like even Coco Goff is an example yes she had some doubters but it's like most people were really really high on her career and were very certain she was going to win a major um anyway Demonor all this to say Demonor is one of these legitimate I think underdog stories as far as how, you know, him getting into the top 10, even though as uh, you know, I think if you reverse to like 2019 and 2018, I think most people were, were pretty high on his prospects long-term, but I have very little doubt that Demonor 
has heard a lot of noise around him, a lot of negative noise around him about what the ceilings and the limitations are to his game. And I'm willing to raise my hand and say, like, if he if he finishes this year top 10, I will be in the group of people that he has completely proven wrong, which is cool to see. Like, I, I love that. And he's kind of got the double whammy of things in tennis that create doubt. Two things that will create more doubt than anything else in tennis. If you are undersized... And if your technique is funky, if you have one or the other, you're going to have some coaches, you're going to have some onlookers saying, eh, you're too small or, eh, you're going to have to change that. You know, you're going to have to change that technique. You're never going to be at, at that level with that technique. And Demonor has, I think both of those things. And, uh, he's gotten into the top 10, uh, at least for now. So, it's no wonder that there's been a lot of doubt. It's cool to see somebody like him who's clearly worked so incredibly hard to improve his game along the fine margins. Nothing comes easy for him. Uh, he's he's really done it the hard way, and he's extremely deserving of it. So that's all cool to see. As for your question, it's a very open-ended question. What are your thoughts on Alex Dimonor's 2024 season? If you're asking me, like, what have I seen from him that has maybe been different or eye-opening um, in these three matches where he's beaten three top 10 players? Started the year with a loss to Cameron Nori. Then he beat Fritz, Djokovic, and Zverev. And, um, I mean, there's no way I can look right now. There's no way he's ever beaten three top 10 players in a row in his career. Um, I'm having a quick look right now. Yeah, it's never happened. He beat two in Canada. And twice last year, he did it back in back-to-back -back matches. Um, last year, he had by far his best ever season against top 10 players. And he's immediately built on that to start 2024. Um, so there's only one thing I see in his game that's completely new. Completely different. I had never really seen it before. And that's how often he's gone to his backhand slice. Which I, I think is a shot that makes a ton of sense for Demonor's game. I think it's a great fit for the things he tries to do on the tennis court. I mean, for one, the backhand slice is a, a point extender. It's very hard to be offensive off of a decent backhand slice. If it's hit effectively, you can't really attack it. And that's always a positive for Demonor. Yes, you, you never want to be attacked no matter what kind of shot you're hitting, even if you're hitting a drive. But the backhand slice in particular forces opponents to you know, generate pace from a low contact point. And against such a good mover uh, like Demonor is, I think that it's almost a, a golden ticket for Demon to remain unattackable. And that's a positive for a guy who generally has a shot tolerance advantage and a consistency advantage and an endurance advantage. So it's something that, you know, can make things physical for him. It's also something that can drag his opponents out of position, which is something that Demonor necessitates. Like, it is completely necessary for Demonor to create offense and to find finishes. He needs to pull his drag his opponents out of position in order to do those things. 
because he does not have that linear straight line power to be able to hit through the court when his opponents are in position to defend. Uh, but he's so good. He's so good at being crafty and constructing points in a way where he strings a multitude of shots together, drags his opponent out of position, and then does finish on his own terms, especially when he's able to do that at net. Um, but the backhand slice, by the way, very effective against Djokovic. What did he do? What did he see against Djokovic? He saw that Novak was uncomfortable generating pace with his forehand in that match because of the right wrist. He clearly snuffed that out, and he did two things. He hit a lot of backhand slice, a lot down the line of Djokovic's forehand. A lot of that created, you know, he, he generated a lot of errors off of that. And he mixed it up even with, and he's not, he doesn't have a heavy topspin backhand, but he even hit, you know, slow, higher, loopier balls to Djokovic's forehand. So he mixed it up, but the common thread is, I'm going to make him generate on this forehand because he clearly doesn't, he, he, he can't, he can't do that right now. He, he saw that, he found the weakness and he attacked it uh, pretty ferociously, which is also in line with what I think Demonor has been doing so well. He's just such a good match player. He makes mid-match adjustments. He figures out what's working, what's not working. He's extremely tactically focused, and he has options, right? Because you can, be a, you can be the smartest player in the world, but if you don't have multiple ways of playing, if you don't have options, it doesn't do you any good. And I think probably one of the, the lazier one of the lazier things you can think about Demonor is that he just grinds and that he just keeps it in and tries to wear his opponents down. But no, he, he can do that, which is great, but he can also uh, certainly take matters into his own hands and be more proactive offensively at times. So, um, And I think he does a great job of figuring out what is required on a match-to-match, matchup-by-matchup basis, and then doing those things. Um, and then lastly, I guess, what, what are my thoughts on his season overall? I'm kind of of two schools of thought here. I'm a little bit torn. Uh, do you want the positive spin or the negative spin first? Let's start with the positive spin. Part of me is thinking, what's really the difference between Demonor and, let's say, David Ferrer? Dogged work ethics, you know, on the court. Athletically, they're on par. They're, they were, they're both just extremely gifted athletically. And in, you know, their, their fitness is tremendous. And they have the consistency to back that up. You could say Ferrer, Ferrer's offense was more predicated around using his forehand. And I would say, yes, you know, Ferrer's forehand is definitely a, a better offensive tool from the baseline than Demonor's forehand is, even now. Um, even now, Ferrer's is better. But Demonor is more creative, uh, better in the forecourt, has more options in his point construction to create offense. So he's craftier, Demonor. I don't know that it's accurate to say that Demonor has less offensive capability than Ferrer. 
Um, and obviously both of them have great focus and they're, they're very consistent competitors. So what's the difference there? And it's kind of hard for me to say exactly why Demonor can't be like Ferrer, who, by the way, did take a fair bit of time before he became a consistent top 10 player. It didn't happen for Ferrer at like 21 years old, just like it didn't happen for, for Demonor at, at 21. Um, so I see a lot of similarities there. Here's my my devil's advocate for that and why I'm not completely convinced right now that leaving Demon Orr out of my year-end top 10 prediction is going to end up being wrong. I'm not convinced of that at this time. Uh, it's because if you're going to say one part of the season where Demon Orr is probably going to be at his best, I'd probably say, uh, right now. Like, United Cup is probably when Demon Orr is going to play his best tennis. And there are a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, he is somebody who draws a lot of confidence out of his training and his fitness and his work ethic. And players like that tend to play well at the start of the year, especially players who who have to be pretty physical, which is true about Demon Orr, even though I just talked about how he's not just defense. He still has to be a very physical uh, player. Guys like Roberto Bautista Gut, someone like Cam Nori, who had a great start to the year last year, was probably the best player, the most impressive player at United Cup last year was Cam Nori. Great start to the season. Uh, kept up the momentum through the golden swing and then and then kind of fell off. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Demon Orr, but uh, these guys like RBA and Nori and Demon Orr, who are very, very physical, very hard workers, um, this is the time of year where they're their physical freshness is at peak and their conditioning is at peak. So yeah, they're going to be better at this time of year. Plus for Demon Orr right now, you throw in the fact that he has the crowd behind him and he's repping the green and gold and he's always been really passionate and kind of really into that. And I think that brings out the best in him. You know, he's got Hewitt. Uh, on his bench, and they've always had a really, really great relationship. They work well together. So, you know, th there's all that stuff that that leads me to believe, okay, like, it's probably going to be a little bit tougher come, you know, Indian Wells in Miami compared to what it is now for Demonor. So that's all. I think I'll leave it at that. Um, Australian Open will be big for him. He's defending... Fourth round points. Let me see something. Has he ever beaten a top 10 player at a major? Yes, he has. Uh, 2019 Kanish Akori uh, at the U.S. Open. But he is 1-8 against top 10 players at majors. So, I don't know. I was just... That came to mind. I was just curious. I don't really have a point to make beyond that. Let's go to the next one. All right. From the Emerald Gamer... Hi, Gil. What do you think of the Becker and Curios Twitter feud? Do you think if players like Sampras, Courier, Agassi, and Becker played in today's day and age that they would get, quote, eaten alive, as Nick put it? Love your content. I'm a little late to this uh, controversy, aren't I? Here's the thing about, about this. Nick, these two things are true at the same time. Nick is correct, and... He's also wrong 
It's also a very, very stupid, stupid argument that doesn't mean anything. Sampras, Courier, Agassi, you know, they're 90s, so I don't know if eaten alive might be a little bit extreme, but I don't know if you go back like 10, 10 years previous, like if you get to the wood racket era, then yes, they would get eaten alive, completely eaten alive. And by the way, on most surfaces, even now, they would get eaten alive, or at least they would lose. They wouldn't be top players. So Nick is right about that. Who the hell cares, though? Like, what, what does that mean? It means nothing. It takes nothing away from them, who they are as, as champions, what they did for the sport, what they did at the time in the, in the context that they played tennis. It's like, it's literally, this is how stupid this whole thing is. It's like saying Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Nah. We have LEDs now. They're more energy efficient. They're brighter. Hell with Thomas Edison. What did what did that guy do? That guy, that guy's lights stink. That guy's lights stink compared to the lights we have now. I have two lights right now shining on my face. So that my lighting is good. Let's see Thomas Edison do that. Thomas Edison's light bulb would get eaten alive by the lights I have in my apartment. That's how dumb. That's how dumb this is. That's how he sounds. Okay. Next one is from Tal, uh, I don't know, Tal Hafaruki. Uh, quite stunning that Nadal has not lost his movement after suffering such a serious injury and being out for a year at the age of 37. He looks slim, fit, and ready to go. I thought he would need to bump up his first serve big time and beef up his backhand because he would lose half a step at the very least. However, after seeing evidence that points to the contrary, what are your thoughts on what Rafa needs to improve to compete at the highest level after this injury return? His second serve looks to be quicker, and he seems to be playing with more aggression and intent. His backhand has, of course, been underrated, but it is looking like a very dangerous weapon now, especially when he hits it cross-court. Okay, I think this comment was before his loss to Jordan Thompson. It was after his win over Dominic Team and Jason Kubler. So uh, the loss to Thompson is going to just really help me answer this question. So what did we learn in that match? What did we see in that match? Um, going into the Australian Open, the concern is physicality and best of five. He didn't quite hold up against Thompson. He he lost uh, a step in that match. He looked fatigued at times, and he started to deal with some pain in, in the body, which I think, by the way, is not going to end up being anything super serious, just based on two things. One, Rafa said, yeah, it's in the same spot. Yeah, that's a little bit scary. But it feels completely different. When Nadal had the thing against Mackie McDonald in Australia, he knew right away that something serious had happened because it was it was a, a ligament tendon. Is there a difference between a ligament and a tendon, or is that the same thing? Um, I need the doctors to answer the answer the call on that one. Uh, but you know, it, it was it was that in his abductor versus here. It's he he felt. It was the same spot, but it felt completely different. And 
he was still willing to like he was still competing and willing to run through the end of that match even after the medical timeout it it was something that it never really scared him enough for him to really pull up lame or stop running and now he's got a week until the Australian Open. I imagine it was just a wear and tear thing where he started feeling pain um, because his body was not used to what he was putting it through at that time. It calls into question, is that going to be an issue when he's inevitably dragged into a war at the Australian Open? Nadal has done it before. Um Djokovic has done it before where, you know, you're able to, even Medvedev did it at the U.S. Open, uh, where, you know, you can win a major without playing a physical match, but it's rare, you know, you pretty much, usually you're going to have to withstand some physicality, you're going to lose a set, you're going to have to go four, you're going to have to go five, it's usually how it goes, so can Rafa handle that? That's certainly now, uh, well, it was always a question. The Thompson match confirms that it's a that it's a question. The mentality is part of this, though, with the Thompson match. There's the obvious part of it, which is that Nadal could have won that match in straight sets had he not gotten tight and executed on some match points. But then there's the the more macro view on that, which is, you know, his ground strokes got a little slower, a little spinnier, and this is typical. This is what happens when Nadal feels some tension. And one of the reasons why he's had so much success in his career is because that's not a terrible thing to happen when there's tension. He remains consistent. He does not usually make a lot of errors. Um, and in the past, he just, in big moments, relies a little bit more on his legs, a little bit more on his movement than he does when he's feeling f very free, very loose, no tension. And then he's a little more offensive. So that that's generally how it's, how it's gone with Rafa. But now when you lose your ability to endure... And it's no longer advantageous for things to get physical. Well, now what happens when the forehand gets slower and spinnier and the backhand gets slower and spinnier? Now you're getting into these long physical rallies and you're not well positioned anymore to win them. And it's hurting you as the match goes on. It's hurting you because your long-term endurance might not be in your favor. Make sense? So I think the biggest thing about the Thompson match that was a little bit eye-opening for me was I kind of had a thing in my mind with the way he played against Team and, and Kubler, although I didn't see that much of the Kubler. I was like, is he? are we going to get no pressure Nadal? No tension Nadal? I've said it many times. That's a big part of why Federer was so good at the start of 2017, Australian Open, Sunshine Double. Like, pressure just wasn't a thing for him. He Clearly not with the way he was playing. Very obvious to see he was just literally as loose as a goose. 
So Nadal, similar thing, big injury, not a lot of expectation for his performance or his level. I was thinking, is that going to happen? Mm, probably not now, right? It, it seems like we got our answer, which is that this isn't going to be just like a completely carefree and tension-free Nadal at the start of 2024. So your question here is, what does Nadal need to improve? And it sounds like you're looking for some kind of technical answer. I don't think that's what it's about. I think Rafa has all the tools technically to compete at the very highest level right now. And uh, I mean, yes, I, I do respect that. You're saying how can he kind of supplement some losses in other areas with technical improvements. But look, there's no real getting around physicality. You can't fully get around it at all. Uh, and the mentality is kind of what pushed Nadal's physicality to the edge against Thompson because his ground stroke speeds were slower and he wasn't as offensive and he was more passive, so he was doing more running and more defending and then he didn't convert on his chances and then we it turned into a really long match and then he broke down physically. Does that make sense? So it wasn't technical. It was mental and it was physical. That's why I lost to Thompson, and I think those are the most important things uh, going into Australia. Um, but, you know, Jordan Thompson, I just want to give him some flowers for a second. I thought he played the best tennis of his life last year. I did take notice. I do believe he was a dark horse um, a couple times. I think he was injured towards the end of the year, which kind of hurt his results, but uh, he had some really great highlights. I think he's really sneaky on any quick court surface. Things slow down, and he's not effective. Uh, not as effective, there's no doubt about that, but he's really sneaky on on any quick surface, and mentally he's a little inconsistent, and that's another knock on him, but that's not in play in big matches like this. Uh, remember how well he played against Djokovic at Wimbledon? Tremendous. He played so well against Novak at Wimbledon, so he's going to show up for these big matches, and uh, he certainly did in this one, so props to him. Obviously, Nadal had massive chances. Before we move on, should I go through the missed opportunities for Rafa? Give my take on him. So first match point, this high backhand volley that Nadal tried to hit a short angle drop. And I think he went for the toughest shot there. It's funny, the, the high backhand, the backhand volley slash backhand overhead, it's, it's such an interesting shot. There are a lot of different like philosophies and schools of thought on it. But if you think about how difficult it is to hit a drop volley from just in front of the service line on a ball above your head, the further away you are from the net, the harder it is to hit the drop volley. And I think it's tough from up high. I think it's a little tougher to hit that drop volley from up high. So I, I just thought he went for the toughest shot. He almost made it. He's got great hands. But I, I think he should have hit that backhand overhead hard. And instead of like keeping that wrist firm and going for the drop volley, he actually should have just tried to snap down a bit of a backhand overhead, which is a shot that he's pretty good at. Second match point, short forehand. Middle of the court, hit it wide. Uh, did anybody notice how weird his footwork was on that shot? 
Nadal completely closed his stance on that forehand, which he rarely, rarely does. Usually, it's you know more of a three-quarter stance, uh, and it 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 just it didn't look like his natural forehand to me. Plus, definitely, you know, look, he still hit the ball pretty clean. A little bit of target shrinking there, which is something he was guilty of at certain points in the match. Because the ball wasn't coming off his racket as hard uh, and as big as it was in the previous matches, but I think he was still like trying to maintain control and, and offense. There were definitely points where I thought he was uh, shrinking his own targets, and he definitely did that on that second match point. It's a shocker for him to miss. Third match point was uh, a pattern that worked really well throughout the match for Thompson, which was a counterattack forehand down the line that uh, came off of a Nadal forehand inside out. Thompson did a great job hitting his forehand down the line often. Whenever Rafa hits his forehand inside out, he's almost never really going to fully recover to the middle. He's always going to cheat over to his left and kind of look for that runaround forehand on the on the next ball after hitting his forehand inside out. So he's going to look for another, essentially. Thompson did such an awesome job quickly and early in rallies before it was too late, just immediately hitting that forehand down the line to get Nadal, uh, to kind of catch Nadal cheating in the backhand corner and to not, not allow him to get into that runaround forehand pattern. So great job by Thompson on that third match point. Uh, six all, and Nadal had a forehand volley that he really didn't do anything with. And Thompson strung a bunch of really good uh, passing shots together after that and actually ended up at net himself after tracking down a drop volley. Um, and then, you know, he, he finished really nice, really nice finish there, you know, lob, um, lob off of the drop volley, and then... Nadal backhand overhead, th that one he did hit hard, and then Thompson was there for uh, for the volley that he put away. That first forehand volley from Nadal, don't let the next three, four shots fool you, because the next three, four shots were pretty good by both players and great by Thompson. That first volley from Nadal was poor, and uh, Rafa should have done better there and gone up 7-6. Okay, let's go to the next one. From Michael... Is Verev's and Tsitsipas's window for winning a slam closing soon? So the, the word window is interesting, right? It implies like that there's a sliver of time and that's your opportunity and you can't miss it. Like there's a start and an end. And I think that there hasn't been, broadly speaking, like a big window in terms of external uh, external opportunity. And what I mean by external opportunity is some of the the greats or some of the players who are better than Zverev and Tsitsipas for whatever reason can't compete. Um, and there have been a couple of events where that has happened. Okay, so like U.S. Open 2020 was an opportunity. Nadal wasn't there. Djokovic had the freak DQ. U.S. Open 2022 was kind of an opportunity. You had a slamless, younger Alcaraz, uh, but, and you had no Djokovic because of the COVID policy, uh, the vaccine policy, I should say. And you had 
Nadal not playing at a high level, dealing with an ab injury, not serving well at all. Um, so that was an opportunity. I would say U.S. Open 2021 in some ways was an opportunity too. Zverev in in that one, he kind of had a chance there because he was he pushed Djokovic to a fifth set. He was dealing with a slightly weakened version of Djokovic because of the pressure he was dealing with. And if he wins that match, he has a shot at Medvedev to try to win the U.S. Open. So in, in 2020, Zverev served for the U.S. Open title. Tsitsipas has been in multiple major finals. I don't think that it's going to get any easier on the outside in the next few years. And that includes when Djokovic is finally kind of done at the top and declines a little bit. That includes then, because by the time Djokovic declines, you guys know how I feel about Sinner, Alcaraz, and, and Runa. I, I feel that all, all three of them are, are going to be, first of all, are already great players. But I think when they are fully realized and fully formed, they're going to be extraordinarily tough to beat for a, a Zverev and a Tsitsipas. Um, so I don't think, in, in some ways, in some ways I'd say the window is closed if they don't get better. If they don't get better, I think the window is closed. But the reason I wouldn't say the window is closing soon or is closed is because uh, they are still not old. They are still both mid-20s, and they're also pretty close. So they're not that far away, and they're mid-20s. You can't really say the window is closing all that soon. They, in theory, should have another another three, four years um, or more. But I, I think if they are going to win a major in their current iterations, I think that ship has sailed. That window is closed. Next one from KH28M. Do you think not playing any events before the Australian Open is a good decision? I think Medvedev, Alcaraz, and Sinner are the top players doing that this year. Yeah, uh, I kind of said this in an earlier mailbag, but uh, every player is complaining that the offseason is too short. I can't figure out why there's only a handful of players who are willing to do anything about that and act on it. And for those who do, I applaud them. From Garage Man, hey Gil, picks for a new most talented guy outside the top 30. I was going to offer Safulin, but it looks like he will be ineligible for the title. He will soon be ineligible for the title. Yeah, that's true. Um, so... I think the obvious pick here would be Jack Draper. You guys know, based on my top 10 prediction, that Draper um, is a, a big consideration for me. And the health is uh, the final missing piece of the puzzle. I think if he has a healthy year, he's going to be a borderline top 10 player. It's just my prediction. So Draper's kind of the guy, but I also think that's sort of cheating, not really in the spirit of most talented guy outside the top 30. I think most talented guy outside the top 30 should be somebody who in some way slightly frustrates me. Someone who I think could be better and isn't. And for that, I don't want to say anyone like really young either because that doesn't make any sense to me for this, right? Like it's it would be so easy for me to say... Uh, Fees, who's 36 in the world, right? But he, he's 19. He's about to be there. 
whatever. Uh, a guy who I think should be better, who's outside the top 30, who I think is underranked for his talent, but is letting kind of other stuff get in the way, is Tiago Zybach-Vilch. I think uh, Vilch, with his inconsistent effort, his inconsistent shot selection, his lack of his his mysterious lack of confidence on hard court, uh, all of those things are are hurting him a lot. And I I just think that he should be having more success. Although he had a great year at the challenger level last year. And now I think he'll have an opportunity this year to try to play more events ATP level, and we'll see how he does. But uh, right now, I think the most, like you're kind of referring to who's the new Davidovich Fakina. I think the most Davidovich Fakina e guy, the guy who I watch, and not that I have any rooting interest, but from like, a, I just want everybody to play to the best of their ability standpoint, the guy who probably frustrates me the most right now would be Vilch. From Mateo, what's required of Runa this season to reach the level of Sinner and Alcaraz? Both of the latter have obviously reached great heights already, but given that Runa also demonstrates huge talent and the ability to go far in a slam, what do you think he needs to improve on to possibly win one this season? Love the show. Thanks. Thank you. There's a lot of stuff, and I mean that as a compliment. Like, that's a huge compliment. With Holger, I can make such a long list of stuff that I think can get better, yet he's already 20 years old in the top 10. That's, that's amazing, okay? That is why I think he's going to be so good. So you can that can be taken the wrong way. That can be taken as a negative when I be, when I say like, oh, there's so many things that he can get better or needs to get better. In this case, that's a compliment. But um, I'll just say compared to last year, not taking into account the improvements that he's made this year, uh, I think there's major gains uh, that, that can be made on the forehand. Uh, a lot of gains in stamina, match endurance. A lot of gains in shot selection. Uh, probably some gains in managing emotions on the court in matches. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Better choices. Better stamina. Better forehand. Those are the big ones. I mean, serve is one, but serve, I think, was injury-related last year. The, the serve was not as good as it needs to be. Last year, especially when he was struggling after a clay court season. But to me, that was just his back. He, his back hurt, and he didn't serve well because of the back. So I'm not going to read too much into that. But uh, the serve looks really good at the start of this year. Forehand looks a lot better at the start of this year. Next one is from Kaspam. What are your thoughts on Kaspar Ruud following his United Cup campaign? He won three straight matches with ease against relatively well-known established players and also on hardcore. His level looks to be very, very high, and he looks to be playing very aggressive at the moment. What do you think he did this offseason that may have been different from the last? Also, 
Do you think that these three matches can be an indication of what his level might be going into the Australian Open and beyond? Yeah, it's massively positive what he's done here. Massively positive. And look, I haven't watched enough for me to feel really, really confident about um, you know everything he's doing better. I'll get there in time, and then I'll I'll have a better answer for that. But from what I've seen, it's kind of you know it's it's really all about backing his forehand and being being someone who plays really big from the back with his forehand. I mean. He needs to not back down. He needs to have intention on that shot. And it needs to be the thing that wins him matches. Because um, it's not going to be his defense. Because you know what? He's he's a fine defender. I mean, he's it's not, it's not even that good, his defense. Especially his backhand defense. It's not that good. He doesn't turn points around that well on his backhand. So... Um, he needs to be an aggressive player. And he, he just wasn't last year at all. It's very simple. Very, very simple stuff. But sometimes I think the answer is simple. So forehand confidence, forehand aggression. I think that's what's been so much better this year. But I, I do need to watch him more. From Michelangelo, hi Gil, your videos have been incredibly insightful. They've transformed the way I watch tennis, giving me a more tactical, analytical perspective. Thank you. Uh, I'd love to hear your top five or top 10 predictions for WTA 2024, especially with the field becoming increasingly competitive. Well, here's what I'll say. Um, look, I didn't take the time to like think through this and you know, write stuff up for every single player like I did the ATP side. But I'll tell you where I'm at. First of all, I think it's very undeniable that this top four between Sviantek, Sabalenka, Goff, Rybakina, it, it's hard, very hard to see any one of them falling out of, I'll be conservative here and say the top six. I mean, I think, you know, to me, they're all very established and... They are all 25 or younger. Sabalenka is the oldest at 25. After that, I think it gets interesting. Pagula, at some point, I think will get a little bit worn down. I don't know if that's this year, next year, whatever it is. But it's been a remarkable couple of years for Pagula. She's 29 years old. I do expect a decline somewhat imminently. Um... I don't want to, maybe imminent isn't the right word. I do expect a decline. It could be this year. It wouldn't shock me. Pagula finishes the year nine in the world or something. Wouldn't shock me. The two players on the outside right now that I would look to, I would look to get in my top 10 is Zheng Shenwen and Ludmilla Samsonova. For Samsonova, I think the weapons are too good, too big. Uh, yeah, like she's a, a big player with big weapons. I think it's taken her some time to hone some things in and start to get more comfortable in in rallies and on return of serve. But I think at 25 years old, she's ready to do it. I think Samsonova will end in the top 10. Uh, Zheng Shenwen, who is a little bit younger, 21 years old. Uh, similar thing with Samsonova. I think those are top 10 weapons. I, I also think there's a lot to like athletically and with the way she moves. 
massive untapped potential on her serve, which she continues to kind of tinker with. It's still not there. It's still not fluid. There's still some weird stuff happening. But just off of her movement, her forehand, her backhand, I think Zheng Xinwen has the goods. I especially love that high RPM forehand. It's it's comparable, in my opinion, only to Iga's forehand in the way that she generates a lot of uh, high margin offense with a heavy RPM forehand, which uh, somewhat common on the ATP Tour, obviously much more rare on the WTA Tour. From Ayushash6309, what are your thoughts on Holger Runa's forehand at the Brisbane tournament? It seems he is flattening it out more, and the ball seems to be traveling a lot faster, in my opinion. Thanks for the great content. I agree that Runa's forehand has looked really good in Brisbane. I disagree that he's flattening it out more. Now, maybe there have been occasions where, you know, because he's been timing his forehand a little bit better, uh, because he's been confident on his forehand, uh, and especially when the ball's up high, he's pretty good at flattening out. Uh, yeah, maybe there have been a few times where he's effectively flattened out his forehand. But for the most part, what I'm seeing is that he's actually... He's actually finding good, sustained aggression with his high RPM forehand, which is actually what I prefer for Runa. And like you hear me talk about like with a player like Nadal, you might hear me say, oh, he's got to flatten out his forehand, flatten out his forehand. Keep in mind, when I, when I call for Nadal to flatten out his forehand, I'm literally talking about the highest RPM player in the history of tennis. So... I'm saying relatively to Nadal, I want him to flatten out his forehand. But for most players, with a lot of big, strong players, with a lot of racket speed and a lot of power, I don't want them necessarily to flatten out their forehand. I don't think that usually serves them. If you're a player like Runa, I want you to be able to hit five forehands in a row, big, heavy Lots of acceleration, offensive, but there's built-in safety because of the net clearance and the topspin that's dipping it into the court. That's what I want to see, and that's what I'm seeing from Runa here. Uh, and it's especially important for a player in Holger who I have criticized for not finding the happy medium enough. And a lot of that has been down to his forehand— where I've seen him get into modes where he's deselling on his forehand and he's guiding the ball and putting it in the middle of the court and there's no weight of shot and there's nothing effective about it, that's bad. And then I've seen him try to bludgeon the ball, flat, out of control, reckless, making too many errors on it. I've seen both of those things for Runa. Sometimes in back-to-back -back points. So... What's been uh, so great to see for Holger in Brisbane is that he's been offensive with his forehand with a level of patience and consistency and repeatability, and that's come from timing and confidence, but also from actually uh, using his RPMs, I think. So that's my read on Runa's forehand. We'll do a couple more. Here's one from HR5867. 
Assuming Nadal remains uninjured, what are his odds versus Djokovic? Or if you don't like that, maybe you could just discuss the matchup based on what you've observed of their current form. I'm just praying for one more epic between them, regardless of outcome. I can agree with that last part, I'll tell you. I I hope that I'm in a position of previewing an actual Nadal-Djokovic match very soon. Right now, it feels kind of besides the point, kind of irrelevant, so I apologize, but I'm going to be very short with this answer. Three keys have been, one, Djokovic's ability to get to neutral off of the return. So, you know, hit a good enough return to mitigate Nadal's plus one forehand. That's been really important in their head-to-head. Second thing, uh, this is more of a key for Nadal, uh, playing on his own terms out of his forehand corner, which, you know, really means being bold and aggressive with his forehand down the line, not letting Djokovic to... Uh, get settled in and draw first blood by essentially drawing the short ball off of Nadal's forehand cross court. Um, third thing would be how does Nadal respond when Djokovic drags him off court with his own uh, cross court forehand, right? So I think Nadal playing on his own terms with his forehand is a key in the ad side cross court. In the deuce side cross court, we saw Djokovic really enjoy using his forehand heavy angle um, into Nadal's backhand. Rafa needs to decide what he's going to do with that. Um, I think he should probably just be a lot more aggressive off of his backhand than he was at Roland Garros, but I'm going to leave it at that for now. Let's end it on a couple of fun ones. There's uh, some broadcasting questions here. First one's from your friendly GA pilot. Uh, pilot. Sports casting question. I always hear people cracking facts and numbers when calling matches. Very typical when I'm listening to live Italian soccer to hear very precise facts like, quote, this or that player hasn't scored in 932 minutes or, quote, in the last X matches, they crossed 23 times with the outside of their left foot. Slight hyperbole. Uh, I know you know a lot about tennis, but when you call matches, do you prepare on these kinds of interesting slash relevant facts and bring notes. Sorry, I've always wondered. The answer to that is absolutely. I'm at my desk right now and uh, just did six days of T2 commentary last week. And I have all my all my manila folders from each day with my notes in it. Um, so here's one day right here. Right. Um, so... You know, at the end of the day, there's there's no way that you're going to remember everything you need to remember. You you might remember, like, concepts, but when you need the precise information, you have to have that down somewhere. Uh, sometimes you're going to memorize it. Usually you're not, though. So one example would be Naomi Osaka hasn't played in a while, right? Everybody knows that, common knowledge. But I think as a broadcaster, your responsibility is to say, well, exactly how long has it been since she's played? So I can see I have the Osaka-Plishkova match here in my notes. And I have, it's been 15 months. And her win over Korpach was her first win in a completed match since August 2nd, 2022 in San Jose, which is basically a year and a half. I didn't get too precise, precise on a year and a half, but you know it gives people a real accurate idea of just how long it's been. So that's a good example of no matter how much you know, you do need to write stuff down because precision matters when you are delivering information in a broadcast.
And then this next one is from Michael. Do you think play-by-play commentary has a place in tennis? I noticed that tennis commentary almost always takes place between the points rather than a detailed description of the shots within the point as they happen. Thanks. Love your work. Well, I know like every every tennis fan just like repulsed inside. Uh, oh, the the horrible thought of someone giving play-by-play during the point. The reality is I don't know if it would work or not. Uh, we're so used to it one way that I think any thought that it would be done another way is like something you immediately want to shut down. But honestly, like it would be a really fun thing to focus group. Now, first of all, you would need to find someone who knows how to do it really, really well, because even sports that have uh, action calling play by play, like let's say basketball, if the announcer is not good, then they are annoying me and detracting from my experience. So, and and in tennis, it's hard because it, it really hasn't been done and practice is what makes you good at this. So to find tennis play-by-play that is going to end up actually sounding good is would be hard, but it would be interesting to focus group it with people who aren't familiar with watching tennis uh, and then to see if they would enjoy it more or enjoy it less with actual play-by-play during the points. Generally speaking, the more into it, the more diehard you are, the less you like commentary. But for the the casual fans, they need some help. They need some help getting into it. They need to know why they care, why they should be impressed, what matters. Like, I, I think a lot of a lot of tennis fans, maybe even some who watch the channel because they're so into it and so knowledgeable, they would just like, you know, they like it when the commentator is very, very hands-off. I'm just saying that there's a different audience out there, which is a more casual audience who needs some help getting into a match. And the commentator's job should be to uh, to help that person and also try to cater and help the diehard fan also learn something. So I think that's the task. No, no casual fans watching this YouTube channel though, so I don't need to worry about that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.